Mad Jack. Yeah. The... Yeah, Mad Jack Churchill, right? Oh, you know what I can do? This is something I can do, just pit boss, where people can just join whenever they want to. Oh, and Senseless is here, too. Awesome. Oh, let's for go. Well. It's the boy. For Exit 5. Wait, people could just come in and go on that? Yeah, pit, pit in boss. The, in the audience. Well, yeah, the whole point is just, like, for... You gotta step up on stage to talk, though. Yeah. yeah. Welcome to, uh... Welcome to podcast number one. Yeah, I mean, had to drop his voice. Hi, Twitch. Oh, this would be a nice first. Let me, let me drop a couple octaves here so it's, uh... Proper I, podcast, I really you know. Everybody, put your mic in your mouth. I really thought he was about to say, "I'm going to drop a hard R." I was like, "Don't." Hello, don't get really from Twitch. Hey, yeah. <laughs> Welcome <laughs> to the podcast hey, number one: say. Calvary and whiskey. Yes, sir. All right, let me go ahead and get the server set up. Uh, for those of you who are currently talking on stage, I would ask you to make sure you stay muted for a little bit. The rest of you, I will be monitoring to make sure that you guys, you know, when you raise your hands, one of either Hank or I will call on you. Uh, just a couple of ground rules before we get started, boys. Very simple. Uh, number one, please be respectful, kind, and courteous to each other. We're all here to have fun, talk about some cool history stuff. Um, you know, just try not to talk over each other. That's why I've set this up as a stage, so we can kind of take turns talking. Um, but otherwise, just, you know, be polite. Take turns, be happy, enjoy some some history, boys. Uh, number two, please try and keep responses short and to the point. I'm not setting, like, a hard limit on time. I'm not saying, this is the presidential debate. You may only speak for two minutes per topic. Uh, but, you know, try try to keep it, like, flowing nicely. If you, if you need to take a minute to, like, consider a point, that's okay. Just uh, let somebody else step up and talk for that time. Yeah, we're trying to keep at least each topic at least under 45 minutes. Mm -hmm. And, you know, if we go over that or under that, that's okay. Um, yeah. As long as everybody's having fun with the conversation. We'll try and keep it flowing pretty nicely. And then number three, uh, let's please keep any political references, anything of that matter. You know, um, not going to say troublesome topics because, you know, it's history. It's historical topics. But keep it chaste. Keep it on topic to the time period. Don't be talking about, like... Donald Trump and Joe Biden, when we're talking about the Civil War, please. Um, if it pertains to the wider, like, historical discussion, like we're talking about something that happened in, say, Vietnam, that's okay. But, you know, just make sure it's on topic, make sure it's respectful, and make sure you're not taking forever. Any questions before we get started? Oh, it's senseless. I do have a question for you. Yeah, go for it. Uh, what is this topic going to be about this week? Because I don't think everybody here has heard it. No, that's okay. Uh, we will cover that in a second. Um, and so, so you want to say anything before I get started? Yeah, I'm just curious before we get started. Is this like a, um, you know, I can game and like, you know, casually listen and speak in the background kind of thing? Oh, absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. yeah, that's what I'm doing. I'm playing, I'm playing Elite Dangerous right now, which is, of course, not even close to historical considering I'm flying around space right now. So... <laughs> be completely honest the reason that i wanted to do this is to have this on my resume for when i keep applying for historical jobs be like listen i got this podcast code hosting kind of stuff but this is also like you know we're trying to keep one topic on civil war that pretty much you know we all know something about since you played the game right but cool lost cause is a myth <laughs> <laughs> we're also trying to keep one topic of 
random history, just so you know. Just something that interests us. I mean. Also, Hank, make sure you're online, you potato. I am online. In Steam? No. That's what I thought. Alright, uh, first topic for tonight's gonna be regarding the development of cavalry in the Civil War, specifically in the Civil War period. How did the Union's cavalry change, not only in its composition, but in its general doctrine? So, over the course of, from 1861 to 1865, the Union cavalry, I think Hank and I would both agree, changed very drastically. Um, what we saw when the Civil War began at battles like First Manassas, Second Manassas, Malvern Hill, Gaines Mill, uh, even Shiloh was a lot different to what we would see later in the war at places such as Cold Harbor, Gettysburg, um, what's another good one, Hank? Yellow Tavern, even yeah. like mm -hmm. the old Globe Tavern with the uh, Petersburg Railroad. Yeah. So, the question then becomes, like, how did these, how did this cavalry change? Like, what, what was really the impetus of this change, and why are we focusing so much on the Union cavalry as opposed to the Confederate cavalry? Um, I have my opinions on that, obviously. Hank, would you like to open it up? Um, well, I would like to say, for my, I'll start off with my opinion on this. I think the Union cavalry had the most drastic change out of the war compared to the Confederate cavalry. Union cavalry start off with Napoleonic war tactics. With cavalry being a charging force, pretty much. They were more like shock troopers, stuff like that. But we later see them in the middle part of the war become more reconnaissance troops and then even at the end of the war they're now forces on their own because they started incorporating the dismounted cavalry strategy along with the repeating rifles which made them much more effective on dismounted yeah and I'd, I'd pretty much agree with you there um speaking a little bit on that whole the napoleonic war era and versus... with that we'll open it up am i not talking hold on Test, test. Hello? Also, Lamb, send link in chat for, um... Lamb, you're good. Five, so I want to join. Alright, yeah, um... I was just gonna add to what, what Hank Bob said. Um, yeah, like, towards middle end of war, we definitely saw more of the, uh, the Dragoon-type, uh, soldiers with, you know, like a hybrid force. They're cavalry, but they would dismount and fight on foot. Uh, mm -hmm. That was pretty big with Sheridan um, and uh, Hampton, I believe. Yeah, Wade Hampton. Wade Hampton? Or not yes. Wade. Yeah. I mean, going off that, I mean, it really came down to leadership that changed it as well with the technology is you start off with Dick Buford, and he was like one of the first people to really start using the Dragoon with uh, Brandy Station was like mm -hmm. the first time the Union fully used that in the largest cavalry battle of the Civil War right there. And he successfully used it through post-Confederates before the Confederates eventually overran their positions. But you would also later see that a few weeks later in Gettysburg when they slowed down Heath's division on the first day using those tactics because it was just Buford's cavalry division there just holding that road on horses, you know, it wouldn't have lasted that long but they used the ground to their advantage. They had repeating rifles, which were pretty new at the year, and went off from there. And then later you will see them with the Henry, the carbines and Sharps carbines, the Henry repeating rifles, and Sheridan's ride, pretty much. Oh, yeah, Sheridan's ride. Lamb, where'd you go? You lost uh, the server. 
Uh, it, what, did it disconnect me? I'm sorry. So I've got a I've got a bit of a question. Um, what what battle would you say, or what grouping of battles maybe uh, would you say we would see the swap between more traditional cavalry and um, the more dismounted and pliable cavalry units that we see towards the end of the war? I would definitely say probably like what Hank was saying, probably close to Brandy Station. In my opinion, it would be Brandy Station. Because mm -hmm. before, just because, Good. Buford split his split his cavalry division into basically two parts: his mounted reconnaissance part, and then his backup, which would be dismounted, which they acted as light infantry, which was able to support the mounted cavalry and support the mounted horse artillery, and then. You would later see in the Battle of Gettysburg the first day of him using that on the first day, but then you would later see Custer using the in East Calvary Field be using his division to charge over there with mounted combat. I think when you go in 64, you start losing that hand-to-hand -hand fighting pretty much with the cavalry. Because now you're in the Overland campaign. Mm -hmm. They're fighting in the wilderness. They're fighting in Spotsylvania. All that was pretty bad terrain for them to use that. But they still had to use cavalry somehow. Yeah, and actually, you bring up a good one with Spotsylvania. There's two really, like, sizable cavalry engagements. Do I have anything on that, that from you? Am I transmitting? I hope I am. He died. You are. Uh, I don't know. Lamb, are you still here? Test, test. I think he died here and in Civ Five because he left. Check his... Off. Check his um Twitch. I, I hear Lamb. Cloud is clear. That's weird. Hey Lamb, you're in here? dead on here. Yeah, I hear him. In I've here heard Lamb time. every single time he's thought he's dropped. Okay. I've never not heard Lamb. <laughs> That's weird. okay. Let me let me leave the stage and come back then. It might be because I accidentally connected on my too. phone. This is weird. Well, Lamb, now that's me and you. <laughs> <laughs> it might be because I accidentally connected on my phone. Whoops. Hello? Sorry, Hank. Uh, there you go. Can you hear me now? Test test. Say something. Pepsi. You're not uh, Zen. You're not watching them anywhere else, right? Nope. Yeah, you get. You guys were saying. Okay. Pepsi. Pepsi. I still one, got nothing two, on Hold on. Let me try leaving the stage real quick. Hold on. Yeah. All right. Test one two. Uh, there we go. I hear yeah, you. Okay. What's right. up, Dimitri? It's your boy. Hello. Is it ruin your fun? Uh, what I was going to say, though, is I, when I think of the Overland campaign, I think of two very important cavalry engagements. The first one being, of course, the one that everybody, everybody who like really gets into and studies history uh, really takes a like, great look at is uh, Yellow Tavern. And uh, I'll touch on that a little bit later, but the first one I think of is Laurel Hill. You know? And it, it's interesting to look at Laurel Hill because it's part of this battle of Spotsylvania Courthouse, right? And so, Laurel Hill is this interesting fight around, of course, Laurel Hill, where most of this fighting was under Stuart's cavalry, which was led at the time by, what, Fitz Lee, I think, Hank? Yep. And a lot of what they fought was this dismounted Union cavalry. It's interesting to think about because most of the cavalry that they came up against around Laurel Hill was not actually on horses. It was all dismounted, but they were all armed with these more modernized Sharps and Spencer repeating carbines. Uh, so... 
it's interesting to think about from a cavalry standpoint because it, it's really this death knell because it came before Yellow Tavern, so it's really this death knell of we're not going to fight on horseback anymore. Because I can't think of a single f battle off the top of my head. Maybe Hank has a better idea of that. That was not just like, we're running through Georgia and burning Georgia. Where the Union actually fought the Confederates cavalry on cavalry. Can you think of anything, Hank? Am I forgetting anything? Not anything after 63. Yeah. So it's like, once you get to these these points of Yellow Tavern and... Um, in general, just Spotsylvania Courthouse, the Overland Campaign, you don't really see these big, wide, sweeping cavalry charges, which it's interesting to think about because the Confederates really did try to keep up this running cavalry fighting. If you look at Jeb Stewart and Fitzhugh Lee and other cavalry commanders of the South, like uh, Captain Mosby's a good one, Mosby's Rangers, uh, Nate, Nate Forrest, his, when he was leading cavalry, you, you see this, this Confederate... Not, like, necessarily lack of intelligence, but this Confederate lag, I would say. Like, they're lagging behind in the developmental stage of this is how we want to use our cavalry. And, of course, we get to Yellow Tavern, and Yellow Tavern is just um, very bad for the CSA. They, they lose the battle, and it's not that big of a loss, per se, because it, it also has the effect of tying up Union cavalry for a while. Pleasanton was out for couple weeks, basically, and not supporting Meade at this time, when Meade needed him at Spotsylvania Courthouse. But you also have this loss of Jeb Stewart, who was, like, whether you like the man or don't like the man, he was regarded as one of the finest cavalry officers in the Civil War, so just losing that cavalry officer makes the whole battle, I would say, not worth it. At least for the CSA side. What do you think, Hank? Zim, assassin. Uh, right. I, I'm kind of, I feel like I'm more playing the role of the person who doesn't really know a lot on some of these topics. And so I'm, I, I don't really know, uh, when it comes to that sort of thing, but I, I'm going to definitely be asking a lot of questions, uh, cause I'm, I'm sure that I'm not the only one out here listening who, um, doesn't know everything about, about these topics. See, Tate has a question. Hold on. Yeah, yeah, I'll get him on there. I got uh, one thing for you. Sure, sir. Would you also uh, not say that corresponds with uh, the Union and CSA getting into a more of a stalemate war instead of like what they were doing in the early war, where it's more Napoleon tactics? Instead, now you're seeing more of a transition to trenches and in placed positions. Yeah, actually, I think that's a good good thing to bring up. Uh, Let's put a pin on that quickly. Let's hear what Tate has to say since he had his hand raised before that. So I don't want to like lose his question and then go to another question quickly. Yeah, no, absolutely. We'll put yep. that on that one. Uh, what's up, Tate? What's up, Tate? Well, that's that's when I was going to mention that, and then you know, as you mentioned something about the differences between the cav on both sides, mm -hmm. and uh, in Yellow Tavern, you know, Jeb dying there and with uh who's that guy i wrote it down too sure. um and, you know Sher was it Sheridan? Sheridan. yeah okay the hooker let him loose um anyway their thing was they had to stay with the with the infantry you know and um and, and you know jeb got to you know be the eyes he got to go behind enemy lines and just do whatever the hell he went just like forrest and morgan and mosby mm -hmm. they were raiders 
Well, I mean, they got independent commands. They had to report to uh, the commander on the field to, you know, let them know what's going on and screen the infantry when it's needed. But then it was like, go ahead. We don't need you anymore. That, that shit had to be fun. And, uh, you know, the Union wasn't like that. They were more I, like heavy infantry support. I will say one like thing. Like Napoleon. Yep. I will say one thing on that statement. <clears throat> For the Confederate Army, you got to think. I mean, at least not, that's my understanding of it. Yeah, not just the Confederate. When you think Confederate Army, we always usually think of Lee's Army. But, like, we all know there is, like, a difference in strategy between both, you know, the East and the West. You know, the East Coast, you're under Lee, you're doing these grand strategies, while the West was more bushwhacking strategies, and that's where their cavalry different, you know, was more different than the East Coast cavalry, as in you had Forrest leading these giant raids with partisan raiders, but yet you have Jeb Stewart here leading with um, Fitzgerald Lee with cavalry divisions, which were, like you said, set loose but they were supposed to be kept on a tight leash the hey you're still scouting for the army you're not going off on your own like how forest was there's very few instances where forest was actually with the army of the tennessee but he was mainly raiding you know through ohio every once in a while but when the army of tennessee did need him he would come in as their cavalry division yeah and i think something else to note on that is even looking at the Eastern Theater alone, you have this difference of uh, cavalry usage between even just commanders such as Lee himself and, um, oh, what was his name, uh, Stonewall Jackson. Yep. Stonewall Jackson, whereas Lee's this very like methodical, like approaches command a certain way. Jackson was always attack, attack, attack. That's why he made such a big reputation for himself. So you, you see even a difference in cavalry usage in like the Peninsula campaign between Jackson and Lee's cavalry that I think should be touched on as well. Yep. But before we do that, let's go back to Zin's yes. question. Uh, Zin, would you mind restating your question just for the benefit of the stream? Uh, yeah, I'll do it. Uh, my question basically was, would the uh, change of cavalry not also correspond with the war getting into a more of a stalemate with encampments versus encampments instead of the uh, Napoleonic line battles that there were at the early part of the war? Instead, they started switching over to what would be considered like early World War One tactics. Yeah, I would agree with that. I mean, a uh, good place to look at that, honestly, is Spotsylvania Courthouse. Uh, Gettysburg, to a lesser degree, just because of how the Battle of Gettysburg was fought. Uh, but I would say definitely when you get to 1864 in Spotsylvania, because we look at we look at these battles, such as when Union infantry under, I believe it was Grant at that point, Hank, but correct me if I'm wrong, attacked the mule shoe which was just this big, wide bulk of the Confederate line that they thought was going to be weak. They didn't have any cavalry support. They had guns, but it, it just turned into basically a bloodbath because they sent infantry and artillery up against something that was very heavily fortified. And if I remember right, it was like 30,000 casualties by the end of the day. Yeah, it was under Grant. The whole Overland campaign thought. was a Grant strategy. Uh, in census, I will get to you in one second as I just give my snippet. Um, yeah, the big change, there wasn't really any more charges when they started switching over to trench warfare. That's when the Union strategy turned to a pretty much scorched earth with the cavalry. When they did the Overland campaign, the whole point of the Overland campaign was to keep going around Lee's flank to get to Richmond. And eventually, after the Overland campaign, began Petersburg where now they're all in their trenches, 
and one of the big cavalry raids during that was um, Globe Tavern. Uh, it was the Weldon Railroad line that was one of the biggest leading into Petersburg, and it was either Sheridan or Pleasanton led a cavalry division to go tear up the railroads, and that's where we start seeing them use as that instead of, you know, full lines. With that senseless Sheridan, I could be wrong. Probably was. I just kind of like to address Zen's question. Yeah, absolutely. Now that he's gone, I guess. <laughs> Weird. <laughs> um. Oh, well, what I was going to say was that you see a shift not only because of the change in warfare, but also the change in demand. Like, for example, mm -hmm. the South was, you know, especially, especially towards 63, was starting to fight this war of attrition, right? Oh, yeah. And then the North... You, they had recruitment officers literally waiting at the boats for immigration and um, immigrants. And so what you started to see was with the North, you had increasing number of conscripts without um, horseback experience. And in the South, the guys who had experience on horseback were really needed to fuel the war effort. Hey, so both sides kind of started peeling away how's it, how's it? from um, cavalry and horseback on top of like what Hank was saying, when you start to see the emergence of um, trench warfare and digging into specific positions. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, but that's to... where, oh, good. No, go ahead. I was just gonna say, but where you're saying with like how the conscriptions and everything and senseless, that's exactly like why the Confederates were winning early war with their cavalry was you've got these union that most like 80 percent i'm pretty sure of like the mexican-american war that were cavalry units stayed in the confederacy so you were getting these volunteers only a few regular units left in the union army that has any horseback experience but you've got these leaders like Jeb Stewart who just came from the Mexican-American War who made their name in Calvary leading, you know, people that have been ranching all their lives who know how to use horses and stuff like that versus the industrial north pretty much. So yeah. we're seeing a big, like, when it came to hands to hands in the beginning of the war, absolutely, the Confederates were, you know, running the Union wild with that stuff. But when you start seeing, you know... The inventions of new warfare, such as the repeating rifles and dismount cavalry strategy and trenches, the Union starts taking a lead in that direction. Yeah, and uh, so looking at looking at kind of this, uh, even a little bit past, uh, oh, what do you call it, a Spotsylvania Courthouse, a good use that we see of Union cavalry going into the early parts of it, or I'm sorry, the late parts of 1864, early parts of 1865 is going to be like. Um, for example, when we get to Cold Harbor, a lot of the what cavalry did in Cold Harbor was really kind of a reprise of what they did in Gettysburg. It wasn't so much that they were actually like running around doing cavalry things, but they most of their job was to take the big important roads leading into Cold Harbor, which really led the way to the Cold Harbor battles. You know, so you, you see this this shift from being like just running around stabbing people and doing all these raids and all this close infantry scouting into being this little holding force, this dragoon force like we've been talking about, and um, armed with these rifles that give them this staying power to really go forward and take these positions. So it's interesting to see this because you see this a lot in basically, I want to say like basically every inf every major army going forward, even in, over in Europe and the Far East and the Crimean War, uh, aside from certain areas such as the... Uh, 
light brigade and the heavy brigade. So you would you would say that the Civil War somewhat marks the beginning of an end of an era for cavalry as a whole. Absolutely, especially. Once I would we... say. Oh yeah, no, I finished what you're saying, Lam. I was gonna say I would say absolutely, especially once we start looking at things like the sieges, like the big sieges, like Vicksburg and Sharpsburg, and we see things such as the advent of the machine gun. I mean, you can look as far as the Spanish Civil War. Uh, let's look at say Teddy Roosevelt's Rough Riders. You know. Uh, they weren't really doing cavalry things over in Spain. Part of that, obviously, just because of, you know, Spain is... Or, not Spain. Uh, Cuba's pretty shit ground for cavalry. <laughs> but uh, also because, you know, you have these things called machine guns, and horses generally don't like machine guns. And I, I know that's just gross oversimplification of what, the what cavalry can do and what a machine gun can do, but I think it drives the point home of you see this end of these mass cavalry charges, even as far back as the Civil War. Just because that's how weaponry is advancing. And based off what you were saying with weaponry, I think the Civil War just doesn't mark a change or an end of an era for cavalry. The Civil War is the end of Napoleonic War strategy and the beginning mm -hmm. of modern war strategy. With the trenches you see at Cold Harbor and Petersburg are like the best trenches that you'll see up until World War One. You're going to be seeing the repeating rifles, which will later, you know, be used to create automatic rifles. You've got the Gatlin gun, which is going to turn into the Maxim machine gun. You get these mounted cavalry that are disappearing now because the use of horses are. But the strategy is still there for now mechanized infantry. It's going to be there for transporting troops, for tanks, for stuff like that. You got your helicopters, which are considered your air cavalry. Similar strategies to what your mounted cavalry would have done but it's the end of the horse era in the beginning of modern yeah. uh, military uh barracuda has a request so do that quickly real quick before he does though i'd yep. i'd like to um, kind of you know uh recognize just how close the civil war was to world war one and you see a massive change in tactics weaponry everything really um so it's 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 amazing to witness um these changes in technology that really only happened roughly 50 years apart mm -hmm. oh yeah and it's interesting also to think about like you've got the, uh, you know what i'm sorry i'm gonna let barracuda go first that's a shame on me. No, actually, Lamb, you go first, because I was going to kind of add on to that a little bit, I guess. So okay. Hold on. Before we do all that, I'm just Take reading the chat. Uh, Rob had brought up a big point, saying, remembering the cost of horses became so inflated in the CSA that it became prohibitive for them to use offensive capabilities due to the cost of losing them. Yeah, that's actually a really good point that Rob brings up. Like, At the end of the war, starting about 1864 and going onwards, uh, really, really, really about the time that the Overland campaign completed, the CSA started having to pay exorbitant prices about everything. It it's uh, it got really, really bad for the CSA. I mean, we're not talking Weimar Republic Germany levels of bad, but it, it was rough. I mean, they burnt down Georgia, which was the industrial heartland of the South. I mean, you think about this. The su southern states still really have not recovered from where... What happened to them when they burnt down most of Georgia? 
especially Mississippi. Yeah, I Mississippi mean. is literally like dead last in many things in the in the union. And <laughs> dead last since eighteen sixty five and not made any significant change. That's bad. What I was gonna add, I guess, um, was like, yeah, it's kind of crazy how you think of it. Like, the Civil War basically leads, like, where it ends. World War One picks up exactly, mm-hmm. um, and it's it just kind of crazy to think, you know, that you have the difference in time, but the strategies that were used at the end of the Civil War were what we used leading into World War One. I. I mean, you, you think about it, and you have as your one of your bigger heavy hitting units um you have horses and only only in the next century not that far away you're already having motorized tanks and and the introduction of aircraft Mm -hmm. which would have been something that you wouldn't even thought possible at the time yeah it one thing that i think is overlooked uh, besides the spanish-american war in regards to the time period and I, I'm not going to like comment too heavily on it just because I haven't done all the research myself, is we look at the Franco-Prussian War of the 18, late 1860s, 1870s, and you start to see these tactics shifting. You, it's really like the last gasp, I want to say, if Hank, Hank could probably speak on this a little bit too, the last gasp of Napoleonic tactics. Because we get to this Franco-Prussian War, and you've got these things like the dry needle rifle, you've got the bolt-action rifle, the breech-loading ammunition rifle, rifle that's not a muzzle-loading musket. You have these things such as early repeating rifles. You have these things such as um, just factory-built munitions and, art- and like modern artillery. The uh, Franco-Prussian War is the first really use of modern howitzers. Like, we're going to see when we get to World War One, these crep works was just insane. And, and so, like, you can look at that a little bit. And you, you don't hear a lot of cavalry you don't hear a lot about cavalry in the Franco-Prussian War, and there's a good reason for that. It's because it just it stopped being tenable. I mean, you don't you get the last few cavalry charges right at the start of World War One, but even as far back as the 1870s, we just see that it's just not a thing anymore. Uh, go ahead, Barracuda. I saw that. Yes. Um, I guess what I was going to say is, I mean, I guess it's pretty clear that early in the Civil War, the uh, the Confederates really had the advantage and had the stronger cavalry force because mm-hmm. obviously, I guess a lot of them were classically trained um, and everything like that. And you know, it took a, a while for the Union to show up uh, in regards to that. But how do you think that because they were classically trained and used to one type of warfare with their commanders, even if they had the resources behind them like the union did that they were able to be to change so quickly and counter that or do you think it would be difficult that's a good question i think i think it would have been difficult because you're seeing their cavalry have to fight a defensive war and the union cavalry was starting to you know do the scorched earth strategy so they're just okay cool let's go tear up you know this railroad, let's go burn this land, while the Confederate cavalry is having to play defense this entire time. So they really haven't been able to, like, you know, especially on the east, the whole, like, eastern front of this war, the Confederate cavalry rarely did any raids. They did the D.C. raid for the Gettysburg campaign, but really they didn't raid that much because they were having to keep eyes on the Union 
the Union Cavalry because they were the eyes and ears of the Union Army, but they were also, during the later war, just tearing up all the trade routes that they had, any, like, supply routes, which, you know, could, if they didn't destroy the Weldon Railroad, Petersburg probably could have lasted for a few more months. Who knows? But you've got to think, I don't think they could have adjusted as fast, even with the technology. Oh, that's, that's, that's pretty interesting. I, I was just thinking about that as somebody said something. And do you think that with the Union having, you know, like guys out there basically on the boats waiting to conscript everybody, um, do you think that that leads into why they call uh, Grant like a butcher? Because he had so many people and was, you know, fighting head to head mostly. Uh, he, his strategy was just to, you know, run in, bash them and keep going for the flank around. So, that is where, this is a little off topic, but we're also kind of coming to a close here, so I'll talk about this quickly. I mean, Grant's nickname, The Butcher, came from the whole Overland campaign. Because this is the first time a Union general keep was going after Lee. Usually, Lee would escape without like getting tracked down by anyone. Antietam wasn't followed. Gettysburg followed up until the Potomac, and then they lost him. This is the first time Grant kept pushing him, if it was a win or a lose. The Wilderness, Spotsylvania, those were two very like close-to-close -close combat fights where they were... No one was a clear winner in that because of the casualties, but it forced Lee to have to keep moving right, which made Grant keep moving right. And those, the Wilderness and Spotsylvania were so costly that this is the first time the Union Army had to tap into the reserves of Washington, D.C., where you have these huge, heavy artillery units that are, have been defending D.C.'s forts, thousand men strong, straight-up infantry units that were untapped until 1864, where Grant's like, I need more people. And that will lead into Cold Harbor, where two heavy artillery units got their first taste of battle, the 2nd Connecticut and a New York one. I can't exactly quote the New York one right now. But that's where his nickname, The Butcher, came from. Uh, Lamb, time-wise, you think? Uh, yeah, let me just go through the stuff that was put, brought up in text chat, because I see a couple of good yeah. things in here. Uh, Dimitri saying, keep in mind conflicts we partook in between Civil War and World War One that may have helped build some of this technology. Yeah, this is absolutely a good point. Um, I mean, we see the Spanish-American War, the war with the... War, or not really a war, but a conflict in the Philippines. Uh... To some extent, the fight with Mexico, fighting Santa Ana, or not Santa Ana, Pancho Villa's Raiders, uh, actually that's a good one to look at later if we want to, because that's where Patton comes from, where he starts coming to prominence. Um, you know, there's, there's all these little fights, though, that really did, like, Dimitri's right, they helped build some of this this uh, technology that we see going into World War One. Also, a lot of our, yeah, expeditions in Europe, Egypt and other countries. Mm -hmm. uh, let's see, and then... Polish tried to attack the German army divisions in World War II. Cab, not so good. To be fair, though, the Polish... You have to look at that with a grain of salt. The Polish weren't really using their cavalry as, like, traditional lance cavalry. They very much developed their cavalry tactics around the end of World War I, realizing we can't build tanks. We're Poland. We're very small, and we have both Germany on one side and Russia on the other. I could talk for a couple hours on this alone, but we're out of time limit, so I'm not going to. Uh, but very much, like, just getting to the point, uh, Poland very much built its 
cavalry tactics around having to fight these armored divisions. And until the Russians really came in on the eastern front of Poland, they weren't doing half bad. And then, let's see. About dash, when it comes to Cato's about dash and culture, you're not wrong. Percentage-wise, Grant still lost a lower percentage of his army force in Lee in the Overland Campaign. Yeah, people forget that Grant might have had more forces and lost more forces than Lee in, like, straight numbers, but percentage-wise, Grant usually took less casualties than Lee did. Yeah. And here's the thing as well. Grant can replace this. The Union has a lot of people. Yeah, um... It was, what, six million versus, like, half a million, basically? Yeah, but, like, the thing is, you gotta think for Cold Harbor, the second Connecticut went in with approximately a thousand troops fresh mm -hmm. they were drafted in 62 never left dc whole week later they're the first assault june 1st on cold harbor they lose over 600 in three minutes because yeah. of the because they charged the most inflating part of the trench where they were just constantly hammered they were the first of three assaults that day that failed and you would go all the way to June 4th of just complete failed assaults. Uh, but that was like the largest loss of life of a newest unit in the history of the Civil War. And that's actually a unit I portray. So next year is the 160th of Cold Harbor, and I will be going down there myself to dedicate the monument that we put up 20 years ago there. Very best. But, um, yeah, the Overland Campaign is a great subject that we could probably do a whole just thing on itself going over there's all a, the battles i was gonna say there's there. a lot of them that are that are really really interesting that we could go through i would love to go go through like the, the lead up to chickamauga and the tennessee campaign because that, that's my backyard i live in tennessee I yeah about 45 minutes from chickamauga battlefield or chattanooga battlefield but um but yes we'll um, close, close sorry, up this topic uh i mean Anyone raise their hand now if you want any like closing remarks on this topic of Calvary or any last questions. I got. I think I've got one last thing, and it's just something to kind of keep in mind uh, for the Calvary during this time period. Is you have to remember the culture of where these people were from. Uh, of course, the CSA they're from more of a south. They use horses all the time, and of course, the Union I feel would abandon them sooner or use them differently because that is not the norm of their of their culture. It, that's, exactly. That's, that's why... a really good point, actually. I, oh, man, I want to... Oh, that's a good point. I want to talk about that at some point. Hey, just the cultural differences between the North and the oh, South going into the Civil War. That's a whole subject that, we could go into. Yeah, I, I, that, you know what I mean? I feel like that Put a pin in that one. And let, let's, let's hold that for another discussion. I, that would be I okay. do like that, but that is also a very political talk. Sure. Yeah, I think it's I think That's it's something that we would have to discuss yeah. with a lot of careful. careful we can exactly. we can put some yeah we can put a little more planning on that and have that out for like a month out or something. Like that yeah. one, we'll have to like pretty much strictly stick to the facts. We can't you know put on too much opinion. Yeah, yeah. It, when you come to cultural things, it's not you can't have an opinion piece on it. It's got to be how it happened. Yeah. It's, it's but, still, uh, I think it's still like, interesting and important to go over because you get to this culture and that leads a lot to the strategies going into both both sides on the Civil War. But yeah, you're and you're not, absolutely right. We can't. Yeah. 
we can't just go, well, I feel, I, she feel, that doesn't work for a cultural yeah. discussion. Yeah. So, um, I think that'll put a pin in our Calvary discussion for today. So, if you guys want to stick around for our second topic, we are doing, as it says, Calvary and Whiskey, we are... No, I did the thing again. Taverns of America to the Civil War. I did the thing and test. just talk about, like, the importance of what you... Any taverns. Uh, the two taverns I that are really close to my house that I took a liking to is the Asa Barnes Tavern and the Keeler's Tavern. So the Asa Barnes Tavern is right in my backyard, pretty much a few houses away. And that is where General Rochambeau stopped on his way to Yorktown. And the importance of that was sure, you know, it hosted the party for the officers, but Taverns were the first ways of, like, news before, like, the Postal Service. Anyone that wanted to hear rumors or get news went to taverns. This is where trade deals were being done. Politicians were going there to give their speeches to get elected. This is where you went to find out what was going on in town. This and the meeting houses. So the fact that Rochambeau stopped there, all of Connecticut was finding out Rochambeau is here. Here's where he might stop next with his army. And we have a monument to where his army stayed and stuff like that. So that was the importance of that tavern, in my opinion. Now, the really cool one is Keeler's Tavern, also in Connecticut, which was in the town of Ridgefield, which is the most inland Revolutionary War battle in the state of Connecticut. And in that battle, the British pushed right through downtown Ridgefield. And some of the loyalists of the town told the British commander saying, hey, this is where some, you know, Minutemen like to meet. So he set up artillery across the street in the churchyard and started bombarding that tavern place. There's still a shell posted in um, one of the corners of that house that I can send a picture in later of it. But, I mean, the taverns were so big for colonial America because everyone was going there to like meet to form their militias this is where all the colonists were going to talk about the british movement you know we all know about paul revere's ride but there was another ride very similar called the syllabies ride which was for the battle of ridgefield someone from danbury connecticut was riding all the way down saying they just burnt danbury get ready in ridgefield and but keeler's tavern not just for the battle of ridgefield it would also pay homage to um the wealthy people of Connecticut because everyone would go there. Everyone, because it was a big like stage road for traveling and commercial use and stuff like that, that even Napoleon's younger brother stayed there on his honeymoon to Niagara Falls. So, uh, Lamb, I'll let you talk about the two that you've done. Yeah, actually, uh, before we do that, I saw somebody's hand go up, I think. Uh, who wanted to say something? I think that was maybe Barracuda. Yeah, did you still yeah. want to say something, or did you want to wait, man? Oh, yeah. Okay. Yeah, so the two that I wanted to cover, uh, two ones that kind of relate back to our cavalry discussion, are going to be Yellow Tavern and Dobbin's House. And I'm sure most of you don't know what I mean by Dobbin's House. Don't worry, we'll get to it. I'm going to go ahead and it's start. Fine. It's fun. It's, it's something that I got lamb into. Yeah, actually, I wonder if I still have those pictures. I'm sure I do. Uh, Yellow Tavern, it's interesting to look at Yellow Tavern because before the Civil War, it really isn't talked about 
Because there's nothing there. So the Yellow Tavern itself is basically this just butt-in-the-middle-of-nowhere place out in Henrico County in Virginia. And before the Civil War, back in around the 1780s, 1790s, it was an inn. Not so much a tavern, but just a rest stop, just traveling through Virginia. But it was abandoned before the Civil War broke out, I believe about 1820, 1830. And literally nobody was living there. So the, literally the only reason we know about this place still, and that it was important, is there was a Civil War battle fought over Yellow Tavern. <laughs> and I find that interesting because it's interesting to wonder about how much of a U.S. history we would we lose out on because it's not Yellow Tavern, it's not uh, Spotsylvania Courthouse, it's not these places, or it's not Appomattox, it's not these places where you have really any markers left because, you know, nothing happened there. So it, it's something to, like, think about and reflect on, I think, of the only reason we know about some of some of the most interesting history in our country is because, you know, something happened there. So how much of that do we not know? Because nobody wrote about it, nobody talked about it, nobody had anything happen there. Uh, moving on to Dobbins House, though. This is a fun one. Dobbins House, if you haven't been there, is in Gettysburg, Pennsylvania. Dobbins House, uh, I've actually been to once with Mr. Hank here. Uh, he took me on a very nice guided tour of Gettysburg itself uh, last last year for a friend of ours's or a friend of ours's wedding, and so that was my first time there. It was the 159th anniversary, and it was a very nice to sit in. It's a ancient, it's kind of an old tavern. Uh, it was built in 1776. Yeah, it's still there. It's a very cool place. Rob, I love it. It was built in 1776 by Reverend Dobbins. Uh, here, hold on, Tate. I'll put it in text chat here in a second. Uh, Reverend Dobbins, who lived in the town and uh, for a long time just uses the family house and sort of a little church. And then about the time of the, when the Revolutionary War broke out, uh, he was actually still there running the tavern, which, was, again, at the time was basically an inn in a little church, while guys, like, over in Connecticut and Massachusetts were busy fighting the Civil War, or fighting the Revolutionary War, I'm sorry. Uh, it's interesting, because I, I found a few accounts of people going, hey, yeah, so I had ancestors that were married in Dobbins House Tavern, because, we, you know, our reverend was off going and fighting the, the British, the Redcoats. And uh, then we get to this American Civil War period, and you have this uh, tavern, and it's still an active tavern and, and a halfway house, you know, like an inn, basically. And it's interesting to note because while it's not confirmed for fact, it is highly suspected, and from my own visit there, I would say that it's probably accurate, uh, that it was a specific link on the Underground Railroad. And if you know what the Underground Railroad is, you know the importance of that. And then, of course, the, you know, you have the Battle of Gettysburg itself, uh, and yet Dobbins House was used as a medical hospital both during and after the battle itself. Liam, I, I feel it's um, important to go over some of the some of these topics for any listeners, and maybe perhaps in the future. Mm -hmm. um, I, I think um, just kind of a brief... Um, offshoot for what the underground railroad was yeah, should be uh idea. yeah so maybe yeah, expand I mean, upon that just a tad yeah no that's absolutely you're absolutely right uh so just for our listeners out there who might not be aware the underground railroad was a very major thing that was going on yeah it's a literal underground railroad so now 
It was a major part of the lead-up to the American Civil War. The Underground Railroad was a good way for slaves that were in the South, so, you know, uh, people that did not want to be in slavery to make their way north using taverns, churches, people's homes, literally anything. It wasn't so much underground itself, but it was underground in the fact that it was kept on the down low. And it was this way, it was literally just these paths. Like, you, you think of just, like, Johnny Johnny Smith from the Cobbler's House or uh, Bill Nye from, I don't know, the, the college who homes, like, one or two people in his bedroom. Just to, to ferry people in mass, just in big groups from southern slave states such as the Carolinas, Georgia, Alabama all the way north where they can be made free, where it's, you know, it's illegal to have slavery in the north because it, at this point most most northern states have abolished slavery. And so they were allowed to be free up there, and uh, escaped slaves were not returned generally to their masters in the north. Outside of one or two cases I can think of off the top of my head. So, a little bit of historical context there. Uh, the Underground Railroad is very important be, just due to the the political, I want to say, yeah, I'd say political effect that it had on the South, because it really, really pissed them off and wanted that made them upset, because they knew it was going on, right, Hank? I, I would say that they were very well aware that this. Kind I, of I feel like happening. I feel like when you have your your slaves, if for lack of better for wording, better wordage, just yeah. disappearing on you, um, I feel like I feel like most people would be catching on pretty quick. Yeah, but it, it's interesting also to look at because the Underground Railroad was basically active, excuse me, all the way through till the end of and a little bit after the American Civil War. Back before they implanted Jim Crow and, you know, they forced the Confederates to free all their slaves on paper and such. Yeah. But yeah, so those are the two taverns I wanted to talk about. Um, Going a little bit back, just backtracking a little bit to Dobbins House, um, it is still actively run as both a tavern and an inn. You can go down to Gettysburg and either request a room and stay there just to hang out, or you can get very nice food down there. Um, Hank and I went. It was a little bit pricey, but it was very, very good quality food, and it's nice because they take you down to the basement, and they've basically kept it to being this... What happened? I have no idea I don't what know. happened. I got moved down to audience too. Yeah, I saw that. that was weird. I'm playing a game. It wasn't me. I promise. <laughs> it's all that was weird. Uh, what I was gonna say though is, um, you you can still go there and still like eat and just hang out and rent a room in there, and it's a very nice place to visit. If you ever find yourself up in Pennsylvania, I recommend going and visiting Dobbins House. So I actually have a snippet on the Underground Railroad quickly that it's pretty important to understand about it. Um, the conf- the southern states had people that went after them, and if they were caught in a Union state, they could still bring them back to the south. So the whole point of the Underground Railroad was to get them to Canada, because once they crossed the border mm-hmm. into Canada, they could not the slave catchers could not bring them back down. So once they reached Canada, a lot of them did come back to northern states like New York or stuff like that. That's yeah, that would, that would be that would be a fair point because so that's just a big thing to bring. Yeah, the Underground you, Railroad yeah. went that mm-hmm. far. Yeah, yeah, it went you, all the way up to Canada. It's crazy, isn't it? Yeah, you, you have to remember, uh, per, the, some people had professions just going back and forth, finding 
uh, these lost slaves. So yeah, you're you're absolutely right. They wouldn't be stopping, you know, just on some border state. They'd be they'd be continuing going as far as they could get. But the thing uh, is, there is also no law to stop them either. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because you know they, at the time, they were just considered property. So you know it. It, it as bad as it sounds, it's just kind of going to retrieving your lost livestock, you know. I mean, that's just how it was then. Yeah, that's like, that's why we fought a civil war over it. Yeah, I was like, yeah. There, there's no, no matter how you put it, there's no way that you can't. There's, there's no great way because it was terrible. Like, yeah. I, the one thing that people need to understand about history is we've got to learn from how it was, we can't sugarcoat everything. Sure, there's ways to be politically correct and politically incorrect, but to learn from history is you've got to learn. History isn't just, you know, all glory. It's gods. It's, you know, all the stuff that went bad, too. Like, mm-hmm. I mean, name a country, and I can probably tell you something terrible. Yeah. Did. So I think the Yeah, no, no country, that, no country is, um, is free from from a crime against some uh, humanity at some yeah. point. Here's the thing you have to understand. Countries aren't, like, morally good or bad. They're countries. They're not people. You can't assign morals to a country the same way you assign morals to people because a country encompasses everybody in that country. And I'm sorry, but the, it's the world we live in. There's no, like, single country that's just all, like, goody-two-shoes. Yeah, I mean, you know, you look you look at the English and... You know they they were arguably a lot worse than a lot of other uh, nations, and you know it's it's the development of their country expanding across the world and just doing what they were doing at the time. And you you know you you have to take a look at a lot of these topics in the matter of this is the time period. You know, you're not you're not looking at it from a modern standpoint because nothing makes sense if you're trying to do that and nothing will seem right. So one thing about the Rob brought this up, the Fugitive Slave Act of 1850, the act required that slaves be returned to their owners, even if they are in a free state. Just yeah, throwing that back out there, because I've mentioned that there's no law in them. It's like he put that in the chat I was like there we go but yep yeah, thanks for Rob for that. everybody uh, everybody keep everybody accountable for it you know yep. yeah I mean right. just because Hank and I consider ourselves amateur historians doesn't mean that we're going to be right about every single thing I wish no no nobody's nobody's entirely right and you know if, just like just like in the field of science new things will arise that change history um it, it happens every day with new discoveries where you find these uh, events that happen somewhere and it's going to change the way we look at as something for a certain time period. It's all about the discovery of it. Yeah, I mean, just building off of that just a little bit, just a little anecdote here. Uh, let's look at the Hubble Space Telescope versus what's the new one, the Jacob Webb Space Telescope? Uh, they put up this uh, telescope and the Hubble Telescope's like, okay, we're going to send the Jacob Webb Telescope to look at this specific point in space that's so far away uh, and it's the farthest out the Hubble Space Telescope. Yes, I, I believe I know which one you're talking about. And they look at it and it's like, it's, like, it's where the Big Bang came from. It's the farthest, like, farthest back point in time that we can get to and we're not expecting to see anything out there and they find like six or seven new galaxies out there and it's like, in, world uh, changes. 
expanding upon that, those galaxies, because they are looking so far back, were basically looking just a few billion years into the start of what we understand as as the start of time. Um, and you're looking at these these galaxies that don't have a lot of oxygen because stars haven't exploded yet to produce it. Um, you're you're looking at you're looking at galaxies with maybe two percent oxygen content because you're looking so far in the past. That's super All right, I don't want to be a stick in the mud, but we should probably keep it back on. Yes, yeah, yeah, let's let's <laughs> we, let's we keep went it. From I got three taverns. Let's go. Oh, there we go. Um, well, I mean, a lot of people have been saying it in chat, but Tom Tavern, November 10th, 1775. It's Colonial Marines, man. Oh, it's banned on that for me, man. So that Tom Tavern was when they founded the Marine Corps? Yes, Marine Corps? Uh, yeah, Colonial Marines and what ended up becoming the United States Marine Corps. Mm -hmm. Uh, started with uh, Sam Nicholas and. I don't know if there's any Marines out there, but they are crazy about their Marine history, and yeah, they still celebrate here. it today. Demetrius here, he's a Marine. Yeah. One, two, two, three, uh, this is Marine Corps. Another one, I'm surprised <laughs> that you guys didn't mention, uh, the Green Dragon in Boston. That's uh, That was considered the headquarters of the Revolution. That's where they came up with the idea of the Boston Tea Party. Okay, yeah, I like that. And the other one, uh, it's actually very close to where I grew up uh, when my family moved from Brooklyn. Uh, it was called Robert's Tavern back then, uh, and it's the site of Fry's Rebellion. Uh, Fry's Rebellion was one of like the three major tax rebellions in the United States, and I think it's the second one that happened in Pennsylvania after the, uh, after the end of the Revolutionary War. And it's what ended up causing uh, the, you know, our uh, our Congress at the time to form uh, and draft up the Constitution, because what we were, our laws of government were the, the Articles of Confederation, mm -hmm. uh, and they did not actually really allow much in the way of a federal government to have rights for anything, right. Um, and one of these tax, uh, one of the taxes that this Fry's Rebellion was about, uh, they need uh, the government needed a lot of money, so they wanted to tax people. Obviously, uh, people in Pennsylvania, for one, did not own a lot of slaves, so they couldn't tax based on the amount of slaves you had. They decided to levy a tax against the amount and size of windows you had on your house. <laughs> And oh, I've, I've heard farm, of a similar yeah. tax in the UK where where they uh, have that sort of thing. And because farm, there there were a lot of farmhouses in Pennsylvania. A lot of these farmers had many windows on their house. Uh, John Fry was a farmer himself, uh, so he started a rebellion, um, and where at this Roberts Taverns where the rebellion began. Um, that was like 1799 to 1800. Um, ended up, you know, where the, uh, the second uh, Congress was called into order to write the uh, Constitution. And mm -hmm. before that, actually, uh, when the when the Americans were hiding the Liberty Bell, 
I don't know if you guys know this. Well, you, some of you probably do. Uh, they took the Liberty Bell oh, out of Pencil, uh, out of Philadelphia when the British invaded to try and hide it and, because it was a symbol of you know our freedom. They hid the Liberty Bell across the street from this tavern um, in, in Quakertown, Pennsylvania. And George Washington stayed in this tavern uh, on his way to, I think, Valley Forge. That's really cool. That, that's all I had to add on that. So, going back a little bit to Fry's Rebellion, you said that was the second rebellion? It was like the second major tax, tax rebellion. rebellion. Yeah. In the, in the United States. That was after, the one that they, I was going to say, that was the one that they actually put down militarily, right? And yes, yeah. Yeah, uh, yeah, yeah, they put it down militarily, and the problem was that you couldn't, they didn't have the, the constitutional know, the, rights, uh, you know? Well, they didn't have, the, they didn't have a constitution at the time. Exactly, they, they just had the articles. The federal government didn't have, it didn't exist. It didn't really exist, and they didn't have the power to, you know, muster a, a federal force to do it. Mm-hmm. So yeah, that was that. Yeah, it's interesting to look at that. Just hit on that rebellion stuff a little bit. The first rebellion, uh, if I remember right, I had a history teacher explain it, and I'm not sure if this is historically true or not, but it's a fun little anecdote of George Washington basically going out there, looking like a pitiful old man, <laughs> just like having to put on glasses and being a little bit shaky, and asking them to go home, and they 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 felt really bad for him and did that. But then the second one, the, the Fries Rebellion, they just, George Washington knew that wasn't going to work again, so he just rolled in with the the, concept, the, 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 the Revolutionary Army and just vibe-checked them. Um, well, I don't remember that far back in my <laughs> schooling, uh, but I do know that uh, John Fry and a lot of the leaders of the Rebellion were caught. Jeez, uh, Barracuda, you made it sound like you were there. I don't <laughs> yeah, remember right? that far Barracuda, back. Are you a uh, time traveler secretly? Yeah. I, I lived like ten minutes from this place. Gotcha. Uh, I, I like I'd like to um to kind of make the point as well that um a lot of states don't really have historical taverns. So for me personally, because of where I live, mm-hmm. uh, I'm I don't know a lot about uh, these events because I I do not live in a city that we have a ton of taverns like that. Yeah, you definitely see them a lot more on the far east coast states like New York. These these original, um, the original uh, what do you call them? Uh, colony states. So your You'll first thirteen the, colonies. Yeah, I I feel like it's I feel like tavern is a very old world sort of um, uh, not only word but just a concept. Mm-hmm. You know, you have you have bars and stuff now, which you know somewhat fill the same same niche except uh as you guys were saying you know at a lot of these taverns you had somewhere to stay as well so and oh yeah i was just gonna elaborate on like the whole staying aspect and also go into why i feel like it's you see a lot more on like the east coast and 13 colonies is as I mentioned before, this is where, like, everyone went to go get their post. This is where everyone went to meet and stuff. But a lot of these taverns, even the ones on currently still in Connecticut, the old historic ones, are along the original main roads that anyone would have traveled to get to the capital of the state or, you know, to go anywhere else. Like, that's why Rochambeau stayed at the one nearby, because that was the main road leading to Hartford, the capital of Connecticut. So, like, 
a lot of these were for travelers, merchants, whoever that was traveling, and that's why there's usually rooms associated with them as well. But that's why you'll also see certain battles named after them, because if you know how Civil War battles kind of like took two names usually, it would yeah, either it's be like named... uh, Bloody Lane and Sunken Lane. I mean, like how I mean, like Bull Run and Manassas, like gotcha, two names. But they're the same thing. Usually, the Confederates named it after towns. Union usually named it after river or, you know, certain like water that was nearby. Like Antietam was called Antietam or Sharpsburg. You had Antietam Creek running through it, or you had the town of Sharpsburg right behind it. You're correct, but you have them flipped, Hank. Is it? CSA named them after uh, landmarks. Union named them after towns. I thought it was maybe okay, but sorry about that. But thanks for keeping no, me in track there. Uh, but the thing is, like certain battles would be revolved around taverns, cold tavern, yellow tavern, because that's the closest thing there. But you gotta think, the reason these taverns are there is they were in such important spots for travel, main roads to get to somewhere or the meet. Mm -hmm. That's just. But I mean. Once you start going towards, like, you know, after 1812, when it's a little bit of the Louisiana Purchase time is in the, you know, addition of Texas and stuff like that in the United States, you don't really get taverns anymore because the Postal Service is now running the Pony Express kind of way, or now you've got, during the Civil War, your telegraphs. It's a little bit different, but... Yeah. Yeah, it's... Um... Uh, like I said, I'm I'm over. I, I live in Texas, and I'll I'll just say that because you know a lot of a lot of these a lot of these uh, sort of uh, markers and stuff. I don't see a lot of those sorts of things over here. Uh, as, as we know, a lot a lot of the Civil War was not fought in Texas, so I don't live uh, really close battles. to battlefields. Yeah, exactly. Um, I don't, I don't live anywhere close to any real battlefields or anything. So I, I would say I'm not really in the heartland of, of the civil war battlefield, you know, and, uh, in sort of the culture that was around those battlefields. Cause you know, a lot of these people didn't get a chance to leave, uh, around these, these battles, uh, and early on in the war, you'd have people kind of sitting off to the side watching it as if it was a uh a, a normal sunday afternoon you know where yeah. where you're just watching it for entertainment at that point um family yeah and it, it that also kind of goes plays into the that's the way it was back then you didn't have a lot of stuff to do so you have these big meeting areas and you have these uh you you have these kind of gruesome displays of of uh, uh, civilian life where your your entertainment came from going and watching people die on a battlefield. Yeah, yeah that was especially popular in Europe as well. Like that wasn't just a U.S. thing just because it was a yeah. war. It was that also <laughs> that also plays into the uh, end of the Napoleon tactics as well. You know, you're starting to see some very heavy, very costly battles, and uh, the tactics are changing and such. And a lot of people didn't want to be around that. I mean, one of the biggest uh, 
turnouts for people watching was the first battle bull run. Yeah. Yeah. People showed up thinking it was gonna be a one. It, yeah, battle. it's 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 gonna be some like, oh, it's gonna be done by this afternoon. Next you know, kind of you know. kind of the kind of like the the World War One way of thinking. You know, be done by Christmas. And next thing you know, the whole Union Army is retreating through these people that came to watch. Like, mm-hmm. you know, and I think that also kind of led to um, the romanticization of the Civil War. It's kind of like that's the end of people really romanticizing war. Because Revolutionary War, you've got all these pictures, you've got all these songs, you've got all these you know pictures and stuff. Of people saying how glorious war is. You get to the Civil War, you're getting quotes like war is hell and stuff like that. And this is the largest loss of life anyone has ever seen up to this point. After and the that, biggest loss of life still for the United States. Absolutely. The top five more most uh, recent wars can't even combine to be close enough. But I mean, the you thing think is, about like, that. Think of all the lives lost in World War One, World War Two, Vietnam, yep. Korea. Even, Don't even match the war on terror that we have today still does not match up and, but let's say you go to world war one though you're not really getting these songs you're not getting these people romanticizing the war because the civil war was kind of like the end of that period i feel like that you know it people were writing like, these I songs go home. and i feel i feel like uh you know going back to the taverns and stuff you know the the way news was spread was through song a lot of the time mm-hmm. oh, um you know you, uh, you've you've got people going around uh, especially way early on in in Europe, you know, you have people who that's what they did is they went around spreading history in, in the form of song because that's the way it was easier to remember. Um, if if you can if you can put it to uh, to song, you can remember it for a lot longer. And uh, so, as you're starting to get a new form of information you're starting to uh, um, lose a lot of these romanticized songs. Yeah. I mean, I, I think war was still romanticized. Oh, you know, in, in definitely. One, definitely. And- uh, we, we had some romanticization of war, but that's oftentimes uh, as we're seeing that romanticization kind of ends after the first year. Yeah, yeah, and I think it, it, I think it really hit people. I, and as far as the United States, I, I think that that really, really all changed for people after Vietnam. Um, you know, that's this is the first I war would, that basically I on television, you know, on the nightly mm-hmm. news by people, and that's something that, you know, really stuck with people, and you know, around to this day that you know war is not good. Yeah, I would even go a little bit further and say that started really in Korea. Yeah, yeah, you, you can definitely see where that is in Korea. Um, I, I, I think it'd be fair to say that um, the the U.S. as a whole was trying to kind of stay away from war. I mean, we, we had a isolationist way of thinking, uh, and the only reason we were brought into two major world wars is because we were forced to. You know, yeah. you, you've got... You've got two different uh, situations where you've got um, you've got people basically forcing American hand into joining. Otherwise, I don't think that we would have necessarily gone. 
Yeah. I, I and these, are, these are clear and present enemy, I guess you could say. Yeah. Uh, you know, when after World War II, it becomes sort of the, the fight against, you know, communism, and then it later turns into, you know, more fight against terrorism. Yeah. yeah. Mm -hmm. um, it becomes more of a nuanced thing other than, you know, the Nazis yeah. are bad. You can't, you can't, <laughs> say, you can't like, say the Nazis are, like, good people. <laughs> They're the Nazis. It's much easier to say. They're the bad people there. I mean, you can ask Kanye. I think you might. Let's not get into that. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Let's, uh, I just wanted to poke that. Too. Remember, we are streaming on Twitch, yeah. so let's oh. keep let's keep that sort of thing. And I would like to use this for work, so if they end up watching this, yes, you know, yeah. But you, we're not. Like you're, we're you're not, 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 you're not you can't get away yeah, with that yeah, sort of yeah. stuff. But yeah, no, I, I think that you can definitely see this. This, uh, you know, this easily viewable. These are the bad guys. There's no yeah. like, question, doubt, or concern. These are the bad guys. Oh, absolutely. And also a part of that is not so much, um, you know, it, it's to the victor writes the the history, you know, you're, you're not necessarily, um, it's not necessarily a matter of, you know, this is a clear winner or this is a clear, uh, this is a clear, uh, good person, you know, because we're looking back on history and we're like, Hey, you know, maybe these people weren't all that great. Yeah. Um, I mean, that's part of our job as historians is to look at this and go, is this actually how it went down, or is this just, is this just hearsay? Is this just like buying yeah. into a narrative? Like that—that's what. I'm not gonna say that's the pleasure I find in history, but that's what really drives me towards history. I want to make sure that I'm giving a good, accurate record. Yeah, and and like to kind of bring up the point earlier on the. Um on what was it yellow tavern mm -hmm. you know you, you brought up a great point a lot of a lot of history is lost because you know there. people aren't either recording it or something major didn't happen there you have the everyday life of everybody going on and no matter no matter what you're not going to get the full picture of history you're going to have a hundred thousand black points to every one thing yeah, and it's like, there's even another really good point to build off of that. Um, the guy over at YouTube, Atunche Films, he brings it up in his uh, video on Stonewall Jackson. Um, you know, we get to this battle of the wilderness that we see in the movie uh, Gods and Generals, right? And you have That's this our Chancellor's Hill. Yeah, Battle of Chancellor's Hill, thank you. Wasn't that in the wilderness campaign, though? No. Wilderness was fought on Chancellorsville Battleground. Ch Wilderness is 1864. Oh, you're right. That's uh, right. Longstreet okay. gets wounded. That's mm -hmm. a Overland campaign. Chancellorsville is May of 63, leading into Gettysburg. You're right. You're right. But yes, so we we see this like this meeting here between these two, in the in the film, and Tinshay brings up this really good point of, even today we know that this isn't necessarily how that meeting went down because there's no actual historical record of. Who came up with the strategy to go on the flank, you know, on the Chancellorsville yeah. flank and push that flank and collapse the Union line? A lot of people will say it was Jackson. A lot of people will say it was Lee. We don't know because nobody wrote it down and recorded it. And, and you know, you, it's impossible to to uh, write everything down. You know, you're not. That's that's why um, a lot of the time you'll see autobiographies and such for you know uh, people who have gained some sort of fame in life uh where you know 
if, if they if not for them recording it themselves you wouldn't see uh you wouldn't you wouldn't know you know all these minor details on what made them them or what their decisions were you know mm-hmm. so it, it, it's a very it's very interesting to think about because just like just like that and in the fossil records and stuff and everything you know you're you're missing a lot of information it's just not there because just nothing was able to record it or uh you know it's just impossible and it's it's just something i i personally like to think about every once in a while because just this mm-hmm. you know you get you get that little you know something happened here at some point but <laughs> yeah. i don't know what it was you know it was a thing it was, it, it was definitely a thing <laughs> but no yeah I, I agree i think that's something that's really important to think about when you look at really any historical event i mean even going back to even going back to the days before the uh, civil war let's go back to the revolutionary era um we don't know everything that happened in valley forge we don't know a lot of uh a lot of what happened over in, um, oh, what's it called, um, not Virginia, um, the Carolina Territories. We know a few things, you know, we know about, um, what's oh, his absolutely. Name? But, like, there, there's so much that we miss out on, and it's, it's sad. Cause it's or, like, or take into, taken cons- into consideration where you have situations where there aren't survivors to, uh, recall. Oh, yeah. Like, that, that's actually something really big that's been happening recently is all the World War Two people, like, all the survivors of World War Two that have been in the United States and honestly around the world. They're dying out. They're all dying out. We have nobody left to give these, like, correct these records of, no, this is really what happened. Like, so, like, that brings up a good point, actually, about some of the antiques I own. Like, I inherited my grandpa's stuff from World War Two, mm-hmm. but I never met him because he died before I was born. Only things I could go... Because he didn't tell any of his kids anything. Because, you know, it's a traumatic thing to talk about. But, because of that, the only things I can infer on what he did is what his discharge paper says, what his honorable, you know, his W, his DD-214 says, and the artifacts I own. Those are the only things I can really infer. And, like, the fact that I know what unit he was and stuff. But that's all just stuff that, you know, anyone can know. Like, I don't know, like, you know, what exactly happened in his eyes. You don't know about him. You don't know what he did. Yeah, exactly. And that also, that also brings up a good point into the matter of war itself and the recording of it. A lot of people who did survive do not want to recall the, what happened Uh, because war is in all cases, not a great experience. Oh, absolutely. Um, it's really terrible and you you from being you know you've made these what would be lifelong friends and they die in your arms you know that that could be one one of many reasons why you wouldn't want to remember that time and bring it up and have it recorded at the same time though i guess to the people that experience together that's something that they they take uh solace in yeah a lot of i i feel like a lot of the time um uh history is recorded by an onlooker uh 
or just someone who may maybe had the job of recording it and that's what their job was but for someone some regular in the in the army and that wasn't their job and that and their job was to go out and kill a lot of the time i feel like they wouldn't want to recall it yeah i mean let's look at some of the older historical records we have things from like i don't know marcus aurelius you know very famous philosopher and roman soldier but you have these you have these memoirs of marcus aurelius you don't have the memoirs of paternius the, the hoplite you know you, you don't have these these records that have survived for so long of these regular people it, it's it takes a specific kind of person, maybe perhaps a specific rank, I'm not sure if I want to commit to that argument per se, to want to talk about this sort of thing. Like, my own grandfather, I, all that I know about him is, in regards to his service, was that he was in Korea. He was a um, military policeman in Korea. That's why I went, and when I joined the army, I went to the military police because I wanted to replicate that. Because, you, know, you know, I wanted to meet my grandfather's, uh, his mom. But uh, he never talked about it. You know, I all that we really knew about his time in, in Korea was that he had a dog and he brought his dog home. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it, I feel like I feel like we've kind of gotten off the tangent of taverns. Yeah. <laughs> a little bit. <laughs> it, it, it's also something. It's also something important to to remember as well. And you know, perhaps this would be a similar discussion. Uh, you know, for for people in a tavern, you know, just, you know, what, what's been going on in the world or yeah. what, what they, what experiences or what they've been thinking. And I, I think as well, like part of why me and Hank want to have these fireside kind of style conversations is we want to have these good, like sprawling tangents. <laughs> like it's nice to stay on the topic, but sometimes you just get so into the history. It's but yeah. That, that's why I also chose kind of like one sp- why like i chose one specific and one broad like the calvary is pretty specific you have kind of specific goal set for this tavern one's pretty broad not a lot of people know about taverns so this could lead to more discussion you know what i mean it's not a yes or no answer it's a and i feel like it's i feel like it's definitely worked in the favor yeah. of of and uh we can always revisit a lot of these ideas oh, absolutely. um later on and and that could be the the episode for that week or however what i don't know when how many times you guys plan on doing this but i mean i'm down with doing it once weekly yeah yeah i think we're gonna stick with like the same time like how we did this like after rifle drills Mm -hmm. or even if it's a pub stop you know just put like that after that is done you know give some people some time to cool down and just hang out yeah, the, yeah. the second I feel the second one is definitely going to be your more of your tangent points and just your chance to kind of go off of the topic a little bit. But that's yeah, why I like to keep also one civil war because that's saying like you know we all kind of have a similar topic in. Yeah, and and of course you know to be transparent about it, you know our the game that we play is is uh, war rights. And it's a civil yeah. war game, and that's that's of course what we're all we all have a mutual interest in from playing the game. But I I wouldn't consider myself nearly as a, like a historian of any sorts towards it. I just enjoy the game at face value, and I'm my goal wasn't to uh, <laughs> wasn't to really 
do anything historically on that. You no, know? It's, like, it's been a really fun chat so far. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I mean, uh, I guess we could, it's kind of funny, like, you know, how we're talking about this and everything. Um, you know, and just the general idea of, you know, romanticizing war, um, you know, how that changed and, you know, how people think and talk about war. I guess to bring it back to the, the tavern idea, um, I mean, I'm sure you've guys all seen the original All Quiet on the Western Front. Mm -hmm. So, you oh, know, yes. like, oh, when he comes yeah. back and goes to the bar and everybody's, like, all the civilians are sitting there and the old guys are pointing at maps and saying, like, this is what should be done. Yeah, they're, they're all, and, like, armchair generaling, yeah. Yeah, and he's just like, no, I, I was there. And no, but I can't say this to these people because they wouldn't understand. Man, and it's such a powerful movie and really a powerful scene. Excuse me. It's. It... Nah, I'm not going to start another like hour long conversation. Yeah. It's good. Uh, it's I was going to say, I think. Movie... I just wanted to tie it back in. Yeah. No, I yeah. think more movies yeah. would be a great just tangent discussion one that we could have. Let's, I, I, I'd say let's, let's kind of table that for next week, then that'd be a really good discussion to go over next yeah, week. So more movies are easy because a lot of people have seen them. Mm -hmm. yeah. Um, but yeah, you can you can definitely look at them and and think about, you know, even, even in those movie standards, it's a very good way of visualizing change and tactic as well. Because, uh, of course, you're going to see as realistic as they tried to get it, um, what what the tactics may have looked like. Yeah, and I think uh, we should table that for next week. For this has run our second forty five minutes. All right. All right. In that case, then we're gonna just uh, make it start drawing down to a close. Uh, this last couple, this last fifteen minutes is basically going to be just open forum suggestions, comments, concerns, any questions you want to ask us about any of the topics that we've covered. Uh, whether tonight or going forward in the future, other topics that we cover. So, if you have any questions, now's the time. If not, um, yep. you know. I mean, the only thing I wanted to add is um, maybe in the last couple of minutes we could also talk about if it's even decided yet what our next week's topic would be. That, that's what we would also like to discuss. Yeah. Here. Yes, yeah. we'll also go over that. That's a good one. For anyone that wants to, like, you know, I have I have something that might be interesting. I don't know how tangible, but we could look at the parallels between um, between early musket fire warfare as well as the formate like the formation wise of the of the musket warfare and the formation of um, early like saber warfare because uh, you see like. You know, you, you still have the same sort of formations in Napoleon tactics is basically those formations, but with extra um, newer, range. Weapons, yeah. yeah, but it's it brings the parallel of you, you kind of get to see why they stayed in block formations. And, um, you know, you have... It, it was like an honorable thing to stay in that formation until you were only like one of 20 people left. 
you know, in the in the worst case scenario kind of situation. Yeah, I think I think that could be an interesting one. Um, maybe just to narrow it down a little bit, and make that our narrow one. Maybe how how tech how infantry like we talked about cavalry this week. Maybe next week uh, how the... infantry tactics kind of evolved going into the Civil War. Yeah. And you, and you can go far back in that sort of regard. It's true. You can go to the Revolutionary War. You can go to the French and Indian War. Um, really, you can go as far back as uh, when gunpowder came into prominence. So you can look at places and like the, the wars of Japan, the Shogunate period. So you've got your, uh, what's his name? Oh, what is his name? Uh, Nobunaga. You've got... Oh, uh, mm-hmm. yeah. Oda Nobunaga, Nobunaga. and then you've got stuff like the English War of the Roses, where you see the rise and advent of the Arquebus, and you see this, this, um, we've moved now from stabbing each other and shooting bows and arrows at each other to shooting each other with these early gunpowder weapons. And still stabbing each other a lot of the time. still stabbing each other, yeah. Yeah. And, like, another good one to bring up for that would be, like, the Tercio, the Spanish Tercio of this pike and shot formation, and, you know, building off of that formation thing you had. It's like, because you know the bayonet hadn't been invented yet. <laughs> yeah, and if we're if we're really looking at the parallels, you know, you can you can also draw the attention that warfare warfare as a whole, like the concept and and the way it's conducted, has not changed in a lot of years. Uh, it's the same concept of throwing people at people and whoever whoever has more people at the end of the fight or whoever captures a certain thing mm-hmm. by the end of the war, that's, that's who won. But yeah. you see, you see the development of artillery early on as something that throws rocks to something that basically does the same thing with a lot more boom. Yeah. It's like, yeah. It's like it used to be you launch trebuchet shell or an onager, or I'm sorry, trebuchet rock or an onager rock, and you might hit in the same grid square. Nowadays, you can get pinpoint munitions down to like a quarter of a meter. Yeah, and and then you also you also look at the ammo types that they used. A lot of the time, trebuchets, if they were trying to siege something, they would use uh, something along the lines of corpses to try and infect the population, mm-hmm. and you see that that you know that's early biological warfare and that sort of thing was also seen in every war after basically um if if not if not completely biological in the sense of virus uh biological in the sense of some sort of poison agent you know you have you have cannons that fired something that devastated the lung yeah uh carcass shot yeah so used uh the carcass shot didn't the ottomans use that on their siege of constantinople the Mm -hmm. cows into it yeah um and then (laughs) and then i i'm not sure if this is necessarily true it's something that i heard about and never really um looked into personally uh, so it could be something completely not right. But um, I heard that during the Civil War, they would store their uh, their ammunition sometimes in feces or something that would cause infection. So even if it was a graze, 
the the chance of infection was higher. I haven't heard of that one. Hey. I really haven't heard of that one. I, I haven't heard of that, but I've heard of something similar, I guess. Yeah, that again, that's something that I heard about, and it was just like one time that I heard about it, and it's something that I kind of retained, and it was probably a very limited thing if it was something that actually happened. Oh, here's the uh, interesting one we could do for Civil War next one as well is um the difference in medicine because oh, surprisingly, yeah. statistically, the Confederates did not have as high end uh, medicine as the Union did, but statistically, their like amputations were a higher success rate because of a few things, such as like I'll give a quick snippet like you know how the siege like you know they couldn't get sea sponge because of the siege they couldn't get you know wool stuff like that so oh, they used yeah. cotton cotton's a one-time use thing cool they just dab it on blood once they have to get rid of it right because it's one-time use but that, they're not using they're not they're using, not using three or four times yeah they're not using yeah sea and sponge. it's not spreading disease that's and a then, great that's a great point and then the union had uh they had you know suture to converse in it because of the siege they had horsehair so they only had so much that they you know could only do so much on one person they couldn't show one person and then proceed to go to the next person with the same suture so it's yeah. things like that that are like huh yeah I, I think it's also when talking about the civil war the talk of the medicines used is something very important to bring up as well at some point yeah. ether and uh we can't forget about uh talking about this at some point but just environmental things that either made made or break uh some sort of engagement oh so, absolutely Ooh, yeah, so, like, or terrain, stuff like that absolutely yeah or or just uh like um if you recall the the glowing injuries Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Mm -hmm. Antietam. I mean, um, the Shiloh. Yeah, yeah. The, the glowing injuries because a certain bacteria decided that because of the cold environment that night, the uh, the wounds were the perfect place to be, and it prevented um, it prevented fatal disease from yeah. spreading amongst the wounds. Yeah, I mean, you, but, uh, that's an interesting one because you find people with gut shots, which is lethal lethal in the civil war period and they're just surviving it yeah yeah um but yeah so let's uh let's go ahead and... how with that being said i mean the we can we Zach, can probably talk more a little yeah. bit off off, off uh yeah. off stream dimitri tate zach anything you guys want to say you guys haven't really you know say anything in the end yet anything you guys want to well, come up and say. And Tate's been oh yeah, but I'm saying like anything they want to come up here and like you know say. No, we're not doing crack cocaine. All right. Mm -hmm. Other than that, I mean, as as period accurate as that yeah. might be. Yeah, you got you got ghosts in your blood. Do cocaine about it. Yeah. I mean, all right. What do you you think? Uh, I think we I should will... continue up with this, or no? I think this is a good stopping point. Very nice. No, I'm saying, thing. do you think we should continue the podcast? Oh, absolutely. This has been a lot of fun. Oh yeah. I've had I've had fun, and I'm just kind of here as a as an onlooker who's kind of just giving their opinion on some stuff that 
you know, I, I'm 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 the representative of the average person. No, it's been really it's been really pleasant having everybody on though. It's been really fun. I just love hearing Lamb's voice. Oh, thank you. <laughs> Lamb does have a hey, great hey, voice. Let's, let's keep that part off. I don't. <laughs> I don't need my work hearing that at the end, huh? <laughs> it's too late. It's, it's permanent. It's too late. It's there. <laughs> I bring this like this like comical relief, you know? Yeah. Yeah. But I mean, yeah, um, if you guys enjoyed it, I mean, definitely. Yeah, well, and we'll. I'll go ahead and end the stream here. Then thank you everybody for attending. Thank you those who are listening in by Twitch. Uh, we'll be back next week with this. Love you guys and have a great one.